It has been a, a, a last battle type of week for me. Uh, so it's been an emotionally wild week. I don't, I'm familiar with The Last Battle, uh, C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. The last book he has in his series is called The Last Battle. And if, if you've never read this, let me give you the, the cliff notes real quick on this thing. Uh, Shift, he's this aged monkey, and his sidekick that's quite confused and naive and really is kind of his slave is Puzzle the Donkey. Well, they're going through Narnia one day, and they find this, this lion's hide, and Shift has this great idea. So he takes Puzzle into this stable by his little hut, and he, he ties this, this lion's hide on Puzzle. And then he tells all the Narnians, Aslan is back. And all the people, oh, Aslan is back. We knew he was supposed to come back one day. Wow, this is great. And, and Shift says, no, he's here and he'll come tonight and talk to you. So please, come tonight. And so all of Narnia comes that night. And there's a big bonfire. And then uh, Shift goes just outside the, the light of the bonfire into the shadows and opens the shed and pulls out, you know, leads out um, Puzzle looking like Aslan. And he puts his ear down to, you know, Puzzle's uh, mouth. And he says, oh, this is what Aslan has something to tell you. Aslan's very displeased with you. You're very lazy, lazy Narnians. And you need to bring me fruit and nuts and all these things. Or Aslan's going to let you have it, you know. And all the people are, oh, I didn't know Aslan was like this. And he leads them back in. And so every night, this kind of thing is going on. Shift brings out Aslan with a new message for the people. And the message might be, uh, you have heard, Aslan's just told me that you have heard that the, the Calamarins are evil and they're wicked and we should not have part of their ways. But Aslan says that you have it wrong. And he loves the Calamarins and he accepts their ways and we are too as well. They are part of us and so they're going to be working with us now. And uh, the next night he comes out and he says, you, you've heard it's said that, uh, uh, he says that you, you are lazy and wicked people because you are not giving me my due. And Aslan wants you to know that from this point on, the Kalamans will be your supervisors and you'll be working to cut down the trees and to sell the timber to put money into Aslan's treasury and, and shift will be taking care of that treasury. And then the next night, you know, uh, uh, well, other side of Narnia, King Tyrion hears that Aslan has come back and King Tyrion's heart is pure and so he comes, he's got to see Aslan. And that night as Aslan comes out, Aslan says, um, you, you've heard that the god of the Calamarans, Tosh, is an evil demon, but that's not true. Uh, Tosh is, is me. We, we are one and the same. It's not Aslan and it's not Tosh, it's Toshlan. And King Tyrion is hearing this. And he's seen that the Narnians are being duped by this. And he's seen that, that all of Narnia is being destroyed because they're tearing down the trees and the Calamarins, who are evil and wicked, are ruling over everybody. And Lewis does a great job of painting an incredible heart of hopelessness in Tyrion as he looks around. And he can't figure out what's going on. But all of Narnia is no more. This past week, I got word that a friend of mine, a pastor... Uh, just recently caught having an affair with the gal he was counseling. Well, what that does to his wife and his children. His church was growing and people, new believers come in. What's it do to these guys? Uh, the community. What's it do for the name of Christ? I got word this week or last week, I think last week, uh, someone I, I love very dearly, not my immediate family, but someone not due to their own uh, devices, but they are going, the rest of their days down here, and they're not real old, but the rest of their days they will be uh, incredibly 
crippled underneath injustice and godlessness and wickedness. And that's just the way it's going to be. And then you look at the headlines and you look at the news and the stuff that happened this week. And it looks like when you look at first the church throughout America, there are some churches that are great and happening, but the church as a whole, it sure seems, has an incredible uh, accommodating issue with wickedness in the culture. It's one thing to grab the methods of the culture that may work that are immoral, but grabbing the immoral aspects of the culture as well. And the church seems to be able to do that very well. And then you look what's happening in the court system, in the political system. And, and it seems as if there was a day when the culture embraced Christianity at one point and then tolerated Christianity, it seems, when I was uh, a kid. But now we're at a place where it's uh, people have risen that are calling evil good and good evil, and they are smirking and sneering, and they're in control, and they are, uh, have a fist towards anyone who has a biblical consciousness, and maybe a fist towards God in defiance. And it looks, as you look around, that Narnia is no more. And, and that, 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 you know, the church is down for the count. And you might say, oh God, I, I want to worship you. Yeah, I want to worship God. Yeah, worship. Yeah, that's good. But I can't separate what happens in here on Sunday morning from the rest of my life, the world that I live in. I can't practice denial. And maybe, maybe I can try to conjure up some sort of emotion and feeling thing. But that's hypocrisy. I can't, I can't do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a last battle type of deal. Well, the... the Christians at the end of the, the first century, I think their, their situation was similar to ours, although a bit worse. Uh, last book written in the Bible's Revelation, could have been written as late as 90 AD. And during the, the, this, this era, Rome's imperial religion, cult, was the major religion. Rome didn't care who else you worshipped and whatever religion you had that was fine, just as long as the worship of Caesar was at the top. And you could have whatever God you want underneath him, but you could not elevate that God above Caesar. See, that was, that was, that was espionage. You know, that was something you were, you were done with. And so uh, at one point, and I read part of this last, last week, uh, Pliny, the author, he, uh, younger, Pliny was a lawyer working for Rome, and he was kind of in charge of these inquisition courts that would go around and finding out if somebody was a Christian, they elevated their Christ above Caesar. He'd take care of them. And so he's writing back to Trajan, and he says this. He says, Soon accusations spread, as usually happens, because of the proceedings going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons, those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods and words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with the statues of the gods, and moreover, curse Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. Others, named by the informer, declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, but had ceased to be, some three years before, others many years, some as many as 25 years. They all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. Now, Pliny wrote about 100 so it's a good possibility he wrote about some of these very folk, these original recipients of revelation. And these guys are thinking, I want to worship God, I really do, but it's tough when I watch my elder deny Christ. It's tough when I'm watching my Sunday school teacher be murdered because of that's what they believe. It's tough when I'm standing before these Roman soldiers and they're sneering and they're smirking and they're living in immorality and they're mocking righteousness and they're trying and threatening to kill my family in front of me. You know, it's just really hard to worship God. I want to. 
But how in the world do you worship God when evil seems to reign? You know, I, I'm hoping and praying for a revival. I, I, I do. But my assumption will be that unless God intervenes that way, things are only going to get worse. So how do we worship God when evil seems to reign? Well, Revelation 1, 1 through 3, when these churches were addressed, the answer to that, I mean, Revelation doesn't start, it doesn't stop with three chapters, right? The, the, the answer to that is in chapters 4 and 5. And he knew that these, these churches that we're going to be facing, and we're facing uh, horrific things, would read and would need to read 4 and 5. If you have your Bibles, would you open with me Revelation chapter 4? So we kind of do a big flyover here. And I think if we can see a little bit of what John saw, it will help us to worship our God, even though evil seems to reign or would continue to reign. Now let me, real quick, let me give you on, on Revelation. Because Revelation's got a lot of uh, mystery. It's kind of fun thinking about it because really from this point on, Revelation is going to be what we think in our mind. Lots of wild images and pictures and crazy beasts and all kinds of goofy things going on. And wow, you know, stuff that kind of amazes us. We're not sure what it all means. Uh, But interpreting Revelation is not as difficult as we would think. Let me give you three interpretive issues just to keep in mind as you think about Revelation today and in the future. First issue is that it's, it's a cultural, a language, a cultural language issue. Uh, if I was to tell you that our youth search team is looking for the Aaron Rodgers of youth ministry, you know what I was talking about. If I was to say I was so hungry I could eat a horse, you know what I was talking about. If I was to say put your money where your mouth is, you know what I was talking about. If you faithful, righteous in northwest Pennsylvania, if I was to talk about the steel curtain, you know what I was talking about. If in fact I was to say your haircut looks GQ or you got a Brady Bunch family, you know what I was talking about. But somebody whose English may be perfect, maybe better than ours, was to come in outside this culture and listen to us, they wouldn't have a clue what we were talking about. Because our language is often uh, nuanced, it's colored, it's filled with uh, cultural metaphors and inferences that unless you're in that culture, you don't know. Now, especially Revelation, it's filled with Old Testament uh, metaphors and inferences. And so your ability to understand Revelation is going to be directly dependent on your understanding of the Old Testament. A second reason why we struggle in interpretive issues here with Revelation is because of the, the type of literature it is. It's apocalyptic literature. Now, most of us don't have a clue what apocalyptic literature is, and we shouldn't because we don't have that today. There's no category. We understand poetry, and we understand sonnets, and maybe we understand some fiction stuff. We know sci-fi, and we've got the, the historical fiction and romance. So we understand narrative and fables, and we've got different literatures we understand. But apocalyptic literature? What is that? We don't know how to interpret it. So we bring all of our interpretive stuff from different literatures and try to bring it to bear here, and we end up in a mess. It says we don't know what it's about. It also is, is one of the reasons why it's difficult to sometimes understand Revelation is you've got to keep in mind that, that John is trying to explain stuff that he's never seen before. He's up in heaven. And so if you go through Revelation, often you hear him saying things like, it had an appearance of, it was like, it was similar to, as it were. Think about uh, you're going to go explain television to somebody who lives in a... Uh, jungle, they're a cannibalistic, primitive guy. You're going to explain television to them. How are you going to do it? 
Well, uh, see, there's a, a, a vine that travels from tree to tree to tree to tree, and then it comes down into your hut. And on one side of the vine, it's like plugged in, or it's cooked to, it's, it's to lightning. See, and so fire's coming through this vine. It doesn't burn up the vine, but it's fine. And then it's coming into your, your hut. Well, then you've got this big um, rock thing, and it sits, and it's got a little vine too coming out of it. You kind of tie the two vines together so that the fire's coming into the rock. And on one side of the rock is... Um, it's kind of like a pond. You know, you look and you see your face. It's like water, but the water's kind of standing up, but it's not running out. It's there, but it doesn't see your face. It's faces of other people, because, but they're not in the rock. It's like the fire goes, it's like the pictures, and you can turn the channel, so there's different villages, that, and, and the pictures like come through the sky. I, you can imagine the, the cannibal guy going, what? You're crazy, you know, you're eating some bad coconut, something. He just doesn't understand because he doesn't have any handles. For, to, to, to hang those things on. It's outside his categories. John is talking about things that no human mind has... has no, no one has seen. We can't understand. And he's trying to explain them to other people. That's why he's saying this is kind of like, this is similar, this, is, this is, could be. So we have to give ourselves a little room for that as well. Now, understanding that, let's dig right in. Revelation chapter 4. It says, after this... That's after Christ came to all the seven churches. It says, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, this Jasper and Carnelian thing, this is really this is kind of uh, significant. Because back in the Old Testament, the high priest would wear a breastplate, very first stone, and there's 12 stones on the breastplate, and they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Very first stone was a Jasper. Very last stone was a Carnelian, or a Sardis, or a Ruby. And uh, what this is a, a picture of is this Jasper is more like a diamond. And if you can imagine a, I don't know how big this throne is and this being on it, but it's a pretty big diamond, and it's just dazzling. You know, the light is refracting off. It's just, it's just but the light is coming from within it, so it's just a, a, a dazzling thing. Ah, oh, it's breathtaking. But also, it looks a little bit like a carnelian or sardis, a, ru- a ruby. It's blood red. It's got red light coming off of it. You know, it, it's interesting when God is is talked about when He's described in in. Uh, other places in the Old Testament, it's as a blazing fire. And you could see this is just kind of an awesome thing. Now, the emperor, Tacitus Trajan, would wear these stones as well, diamonds and different stones, but they would be uh, embedded into their, their uh, robes. They would be embedded into their crowns. And the, the, what gave them royalty and dignity was what they wore. And what gives this person dignity on the throne is not their outward appearance. It's who they are. They are dazzling. They are bright. They are all powerful. Then it goes on. And it's interesting, by the way. He says that, you know, back home, Trajan's on the throne of the Roman Empire. But here, this one's on the throne of the whole universe. Don't, don't think he's not on the throne. He's still on the throne, John. It's important that you understand that. And it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, there's like 12 different interpretations for who these 24 guys are. So we're not going to give you all of them and try to figure it out. And that's 
Revelation is not hard if you don't spend all your time digging at the trees. Back up and look at the forest and it makes a lot more sense. But these 24 guys, there's a couple things we know. 24, though it's not a big number for us, First Chronicles 24 and 25 let us know that there were 24 divisions of priests in the temple and 24 divisions of singers, worshipers. So that worshiping and, and taking care of the temple and all the administration of it would be going on 24-7. Always, always happening. Now these, these 24, probably 12 representing the, the tribes of Israel and 12 representing the apostles, the New Testament church. And it's really a picture of all of God's people as priests, as worshiping. We don't think they're angels because they're clothed in, in white, the, the clothing of the redeemed. Because they have crowns, the only people promised crowns are saints. This is their rewards for what they've done. And so these, these 24 are around the throne. Then it keeps going. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the, the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Um, Maybe this reminds you of Exodus 19. Remember Moses is called up to be on Sinai. And as he goes up, there's, there's lightning and there's thunder. and there's, it's Often in the Old Testament, we see this associated with God. And quite often in the Old Testament, it's, it's associated with God's judgment. And if you know your revelation, you know starting in chapter 6, God's judgment is going to be unleashed on the earth. And God is just getting ready to blow here. I mean, this is a huge thing. It says, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature uh, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say. Now, these, these creatures... Uh, similar to the creatures that Ezekiel saw in his vision, Ezekiel 1 and 2. They got six wings. They're, 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 they're probably seraphim. Some would say that these are the most glorious creatures God has ever made. There's different levels of uh, different uh, heavenly creatures, that these are the most glorious. You've got the uh, one with the face of the, the, the lion, who is the most powerful wild animal. You've got the ox, who's the most powerful domesticated animal. You've got man, would probably be speaking of wisdom. You've got the eagle, certainly the king of air, the, the royal. And the picture is of power. And on top of that, they're all covered with eyes, which again, they speak of one of two things, either God's omniscience, omnipresence. He sees everything. He knows everything. Or even with these beasts, there's nothing that gets by them, that gets by their attention. They are almost one on each side of the throne. They're almost like God's uh, bouncers. Now, if you, you picture this for just a second. You've got the throne room. You've got on this throne, you've got this blazing kind of whatever. It's awesome. There's lightning coming out of it and thunder coming out of it. And then you've got these 24 guys in white robes and crowns all around it. And then right around it, you've got these creatures. And they don't look like pets. You know, they're just pretty intense. They've got the wings going and everything else. Makes you just want to run up and, and give God a, a high five or something, doesn't it? You kind of, whoa, hang on. I don't know if I can get by those things. I'm not, I'm not so sure I want to do that. But they're saying, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. You know, it's interesting. It says that whenever the creatures give glory and honor, the elders fall down and worship. But verse ahead of it lets us know that they never cease to give him glory. This is kind of outside the dimension of time. John is looking at this. It's kind of all happening at the same time. And yet there's... So he's trying to explain this. As these guys are falling down, the elders to worship, they cast their crowns before the throne. Now, mankind is, is made for glory. We are. We're created for glory. We love aesthetics, don't we? We can just stare at the sunset. How many of us go down to the, the aisle sometimes just to watch the sunset? It's so, so awesome. Or we'll stop the car sometimes when, when the leaves are, are changing, just to, over the countryside, just to stop and go, wow. I remember one time we were coming out of uh, Durango, uh, Colorado. And it was beautiful, just beautiful. You got desert stuff, you got leaves, and, and the leaves were shifting. It was like the height of, of color. I just had to stop where everyone else had stopped as well, just to look and go, this is incredible. There's this glory built up within us. We, we, we love uh, nice music. It's pleasing to us. We can appreciate beauty in an individual. We can appreciate fine works of art. Uh, we're made for glory. We like competition and we don't like to lose, do we? We don't want to win. Uh, we, we like to uh, be on top, to be significant. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's part of our being created in God's image, created for glory. But the whole goal of it is to drive us to Him, the glorious one. Problem is, when we've got our crowns, our glory, our significance, and yeah, we'll worship God, but we're hanging out of those crowns, and we're going to continue trying to build them. That's not worship. But when you come before Him, and you recognize who He is, it's not about my significance. It's not about my glory. It's not about who I am. My cheap tin. Can you imagine in the presence of this picture on the throne? It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. But they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Now, why is John falling apart here? Why is he crying here? It's overwhelmed with the whole emotion of everything and it just breaks down. When we look about the, the scroll, think about that for a minute. What's on the scroll? Very, 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 very important. The uh, way they made scrolls, scroll is made of papyrus and it's kind of like a, a plant like rhubarb, like celery. And so you, they would pull this, the strips, like the strings, we call them, the dental floss stuff, and they would lay them all out. Uh, and then they would pull, pull them again and they would lay them all out horizontally now, crisscrossing on it. And then they would take this gluey substance and they would smash this whole thing together and, and let it dry. And this would be a piece of paper, a piece of papyrus. And they would make a bunch of these and they would sew them all together. They would put a stick on each end and they would roll it up and that would be a scroll. And if you're writing in Hebrew or in Greek, you're going to write... In Hebrew, you're going from right to left. In Greek, you're going from left to right. You, you write on the inside of the scroll because all the lines from the rhubarb, the papyrus, is going horizontal. So it's easy to write, follow it. 
But you never write on the back because the lines are all vertical. The, your pen would be jagged, jagged, jagged all over the place. And so you don't find that. We don't find too much writing on the back. But here, this scroll, written full, front and back, this is all of what God has. This is God's plan. This is all. There's no more room to change it. There's no room to add to it. This is it. This is all of God's plan for redemption, for the future, for Christ to rule. Everything from this point on in Revelation, it's here. One would say this is even redemption from from the past. And the way it worked is after you had the the scroll, you covered it with a cloth, and then you you tied it with some strings. You tied it up. And then you took some wax, and you put it on the string, hot wax, and you took your ring that had your signet ring in it, Uh, like your uh, credit card or something, your social security number, and you put it on the wax. And when it dried, it sealed it. And nobody could open that scroll except whose identity was in the wax. It was the only person. Um, We find this kind of thing with, with Rome. Remember when they buried Jesus, they put him in a tomb, they sealed the tomb, they didn't use wax, but the goal was no one can bust this seal but Rome. Or someone stronger than Rome. That's kind of what happened, right? But they, they, they sealed, they sealed the, the, the scroll. Now, the deal is, is what's inside this scroll really stays sealed until the seals are broken. In other words, what's inside the scroll cannot be enacted upon, will never become reality until these seals are broken. The, this, this, this scroll stays shut up forever unless it can be opened. And they looked all over heaven. And they looked all over earth and looked under earth, looked everywhere. Who had the identity that could open the scroll, that could break the seals and open it? Nobody. This is God's plan. It's right here. And John is thinking, you've got to be kidding me. For crying out loud, it's, the, 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 it's right here. But it will never be opened because nobody can open it. The, the redemption was not going to happen. All those folk who are back down on earth who are dying for this are dying for naught. John's thinking as, as an apostle, I watched 11 of my best friends be murdered for the sake of this hope that's never going to happen. The, 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 the redemption, the, the judgments, the, the Christ ruling, it's right here in the throne, but it's never going to happen, is it? Can't happen unless the, unless the scroll can be... Seal's broken, scroll opened. So he's weeping. Of course, it's time to weep right there. It's time to weep. Side note, without Christ, if you really think about life, weeping is really your only option. It really is your only option. But one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Genesis 49, the root of David, Isaiah, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is pretty good news. We found somebody who can open it. Oh, yes, yes. And then between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the word for lamb there is, is, is baby, baby lamb. It's, I mean, we're talking it's a um, most harmless, most vulnerable lamb as if it had been slain. Now, John just said that this elder told me it was the lion of the tribe of Judah. But you've got this little pet baby lamb that looked like it was mutilated even. I mean, these two just do not, do not work. And then he says, with seven horns. Now, the so horn, of course, in the Old Testament, is a sign of strength. And seven is the perfect number, very uh, uh, numerically uh, symbolic uh, throughout Scripture, actually, but especially in Revelation. He's saying that this lamb... 
Looks, looks innocent. All power. All power. You think back down on earth that stuff is happening and God has no power to deal with. No, 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 no. Full power. And then he's got seven eyes. And this is going to go one of two ways here. One is, is either he's also he's omniscient. You think that he just doesn't know what you're feeling, what you're thinking. No, no, he knows. He knows. He knows what we're dealing. He knows. He knows. He's all power. He, that's, not, that's not the issue. But also it says that they're the seven spirits of God. Now that phrase is going to come all over the place in Revelation. That's taken out of Zechariah. Uh, and what it's referring to is, again, seven is the perfect number. So this is the fulfilled Holy Spirit, complete Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit can be grieved down here on earth, uh, in heaven. And there'll be a day here on earth when Holy Spirit is unleashed completely. No, no grieving. And it's going to be terrifying. For those who know him, he will, he will comfort, of course. But those who don't, he will confront. The time to convict is, is over. It's time to confront. And it's a terrifying, terrifying thing. In verse 7, it says, And he went. This is the, the, the lion, lamb that was slain. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. You know, you know, this has just got to be a wild picture if you're John. You've got this, whatever it is, on the throne, blazing. But it's something. He knows it's not just a, a force. It's a, a person. He refers to it accordingly. Uh, but it's blazing. It's dazzling. It's amazing. You've got the elders around it. You've got these four guard dog cherubim beast things around it. And you've got this, this little lamb walk right up through all that. Walk up right to he who's on the throne and take this out of his hand. You know, it's interesting. It's not just the lion lamb that's taken this. It's the lion lamb who has been slain. There's been multiple documents that were found that were like this, scrolls that were people's wills. And when you make up your will, you seal it. You've got the... You got the uh, wax and you put your uh, emblem on it and no one can then slit the seal except you as the owner or when you die, the trustee. Jesus had to die in order to take the scroll. I mean, if you think about this, I know it's kind of a ludicrous thought, but if Christ hadn't died, there's no redemption, there's no forgiveness, there's no mercy, there's no grace. Everything was pointing to Christ's death because he was crucified before the foundation of the world. But had he not been was if he was not, we're, we're, we're dealing with um, Satan still being the prince of the power of the air, ruling, un, un, unbridled. So yet, remember Jesus is in the garden and he says, Father, if there's any other way, we can let this cup pass from me. Let's let it pass. There's none. You had to die. And so Christ, because he died, it's the only reason, it's the only one, you could come and you could take the, the scroll and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24... He hadn't opened it yet. It doesn't start opening until chapter 6. We're not going to get into that one. But when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, which is a sign of worship, and a golden bowl full of incense. And he tells us what those are, which are the prayers of the saints. Before this, there was no prayers in the throne room because we pray in Jesus' name. We can approach the throne not in and of ourselves, right, but because of Christ. When we pray in Jesus' name, that is not just tagging on the back of our prayers in Jesus' name. It's okay to say that, but we just need to keep in mind that that is not a, a signature that kind of guarantees that now he's got to listen to us. Praying in Christ's name is being 
under his blood. It's being bought by him. It's being surrendered to him. It's him giving him as my Lord. And then I, I go through his word and I pray his will. When we pray what he would pray, we are praying in his name. So you can pray all, all the selfish stuff you want and tag on it in Jesus' name, but you're not praying in Jesus' name. But, but here, when we pray, somehow, it ends up in the, the throne room of God. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on earth. You know, what's fascinating about this is uh, Deuteronomy makes it real clear. Only God, only worship God. Remember, he gets his guys out of Egypt. First command that you shall have no other gods before me. Worship nobody else. There should be no competition for the allegiance of your heart. I, I, I'm it. Not because he needs us, but we need him. We were created to worship him. And as we worship him, we are fulfilled. And so he says, don't worship anybody else. There's all kinds of uh, capital punishment lines in the Old Testament for worshiping other than Jehovah God. And yet, what do you got going on here? You've got the Lamb right in the presence of God Almighty on the throne, being worshipped by the elders, by the beasts. Uh, what's amazing uh, about that, and John's going to let us know throughout this revelation, that Jesus, the deity of Jesus, really is first and foremost in his mind. Sometimes we think, if we try to think about this Trinity thing, that Jesus is way up there, you know what I mean? I mean, he's like top dog as far as created uh, creatures in heaven no question he's almost god but he can't really be god you know he's just he's just almost he's just kind of under just a little bit just under him oh no from this point on the rest of the book the, the the lamb is associated with the throne he's there he's god notice all these other creatures are bowing down and worshiping now the one on the throne is not bowing down and worshiping but he's okay with that Jesus is God. Now, this Holy Spirit, no other book is as much Trinity as Revelation. If you really think on the Trinity, we don't believe in three gods. We don't believe that one God just kind of puts on a different hat each time. You know, really, there's just one, and he just comes in different appearances. That's, those are, that's heresy. We believe one God and three persons, co-equal in substance and power and glory. If you try to figure that one out, it really freaks you out. It really fries, fries your mind a little bit. But it's what the text says over and over and over. Jesus is God. It says in verse 11, Then I looked and I, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So all these, all these people are worshiping. All the creatures and worshiping. It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's like the, the walls of the throne just kind of pushed out. And all of heaven joins. The largest numbers they can mention. All of heaven, every heavenly creature is, is worshiping the Lamb. They're understanding who Jesus is and what, in fact, John is being told here is the way you can worship God even though it looks like hell is on the throne down here. Just keep in mind that, that ultimately he's not. Jesus has conquered. Jesus is overcoming. Because of that, God's timing might not be yours, but it will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. And, and when you think it can't get any bigger, it gets a little bit bigger. In verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. He said, There'll be a day when everybody will bow down before the Lamb. You know that emperor guy back home, Trajan, you know, in Tacitus? One day, they will be bowing down before Christ. They're not going to be forced down. But when you walk in and you see the power, and you see the glory, you know this is right. One day, Billy Graham and Billy the Kid and Bill Clinton will all be there. They will be there. One day, really, really, Madonna who sang of Christ, right? She did. And the Madonna, the mother of Jesus who sang of Christ, will be there. And one day, uh, Tilla the Hun and Genghis Khan and Vladimir Putin and Barack Obama will all be there kneeling down. And one day, Tom Cruise and Tom Brady and Thomas Edison and you and me. See, the issue is not. The issue is not. I mean, this is Philippians 2, right? That he's exalted the name of Christ, that at the name of Christ... Every knee will bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ. So so the issue is not, are you going to worship him? No, no, you will worship him. You will. But are you going to worship him now? Because if we wait to that day, then you'll be worshiping him as your judge. If you worship him now, you make that choice. You worship him as your savior. There's a huge, huge difference. So how can we Worship when the wheels are falling off, when evil seems to reign, and it may just get a whole lot worse uh, before he returns. By by having a fresh picture of Jesus, of this 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 lion, lamb, crucified. Because of that, he can take the the enact God's plan. It will transpire. Let me read to you a, a a poem that a friend of mine wrote. Uh, Mark Ashton, he's the pastor at Christ Community Alliance Church in, it's in Omaha. He says, Jesus is better. He says, I've got five minutes to convince you of one thing. Altogether, it's 13 letters, three words, and one complete sentence, and I hope you never forget it. Jesus is better. You say, better than what? I say, better than everything. He's better than any dream you might be chasing after. He's better than any ambition that may have captured your devotion. He's better than anything that could distract you from doing what you were created to do. Jesus is better. He's bigger than the labels you were given when you were young. He's huger than the cynicism that settles in you as you get older. He's greater than the greatest moment in your life thus far. Jesus is better. He's better than a six-figure salary. He's better than a 4.0 GPA. He's better than a three-story house. He's better than a Heisman trophy, a trophy hunt, or a trophy wife. He's better than a big promotion, no commotion, or a DVD player with replay in slow motion. He's better than a scholarship, a big raise, or a Harvard education. He's better than the Super Bowl, a Caribbean cruise, or a Disney vacation. Jesus is better. He's better than any person that has ever walked this earth. He's wiser than Confucius and smarter than Einstein. He's more holy than Gandhi and more spiritual than Buddha. He's more eloquent than Shakespeare and more creative than Mozart. He's more powerful than Napoleon and more compassionate than Mother Teresa. Jesus is better. The Bible says he's better than the angels, better than the demons, and better than any prophet, priest, or saint. Jesus is better. Moses represents the law, but Jesus fulfills the law. 
Joshua launched a kingdom that lasted centuries. Jesus launched a kingdom that lasts forever. David beat a giant named Goliath. Jesus beat a giant named Death. Jesus is better. He's the rest you've been waiting for. He's bigger than the temple. He's better than the law. His priesthood is better. Jesus is better. He's better than money, cars, clothes, sex, entertainment, achievement, and popularity. He's better than anything this world can offer you. Jesus is better. He's better than a big old church, baptisms in June, a millionaire tither, or a trip to Cancun. Jesus is better. And there will be times when it's hard to believe. Times when it doesn't feel like Jesus is better. The world will hate you. Your flesh will fight you. And the devil will lie to you. Storms will come. You're going to face disappointment, deception, betrayal, rejection, regret, sickness, and death. You're going to feel tired, empty, brokenhearted, scared, and alone. But don't forget in the darkness what you learn in the light. Jesus is better. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Prince of peace and the light of the world. He's the friend of sinners and the enemy of Satan. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is better. And if you really, truly believe it, it's going to cost you. You're going to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. You're going to help the poor swallow your pride and love your enemies. You're going to read your Bible when you'd rather watch TV. You're going to pray when you'd rather sleep. You're going to serve when you'd rather be served. You're going to speak up when you'd rather be silent. But when it's all said and done, you won't regret it. You'll say, it was worth it. Let me hear you say those three beautiful words now. Jesus is better. And the day you buy this is the day that you step out of your cul-de-sac existence into God's greater plans for your life in this world. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Jesus is better. Whatever it takes, I want you to know that Jesus really is better. Thirteen letters, three words, one sentence, and no question about it. Jesus is better.